The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabe. As we close out the year, we're going to try something a little different. My colleagues around the globe have peered into their crystal balls, and we're going to try and figure out what's in store for next year. For the next three weeks, you'll be hearing this on our podcasts. So please take a listen. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And for Breaking Views, that means more than just the holiday season. It means it's time for us to publish our predictions for the coming 12 months. I'm here with Quentin Webb, who's our Asia financial editor and this year's editor of our predictions book. Quentin, um, why don't you let our listeners, maybe new to predictions, kind of give them a sense of why we pull these together, what they're all about, what are we trying to accomplish here? Well, I think the end of the year or the start of the new year is a natural time to kind of take stock and think about uh, what's coming up ahead. Um, I think also for Breaking Views writers, we uh, sometimes get too kind of stuck in the moment. We're reacting to bits of news as they break. And we don't always get the opportunity to kind of step back and think what are the bigger themes shaping the sectors and the markets that we're looking at. So here, you know, we spend a few weeks uh, kind of pulling together predictions from all around the world, different sectors, different companies, different countries. And what, uh, I mean, we obviously like to be right, as anyone does, but but we don't always get it right. But these are also more um, sort of thought exercises, as, as most of our columns are, trying to get people thinking about, um, as you say, different econ- economies, companies, situations a bit differently. Uh, but take us through some of the, the, the hits and misses, I guess, of 2017 um, before we get into what's what we think is coming for 2018. Right. Well, I think, you know, we'd like to think that we get more right than we get wrong. It's forecasting, so it's always difficult and we're talking about complex systems here you know markets companies uh, electoral systems so uh, I don't think we ever set out to get a hundred percent accuracy rate the only way to do that would be to say nothing of any interest at all Um, some hits from last year we said that India would need to uh, do a big recapitalization of its state banks which are burdened with too much debt Um, that is indeed happening now we said there'd be a wave of mergers in the gulf between banks that's happening too um some other things where we were kind of in the zone but not quite right you know we highlighted a lot of very acquisitive companies and said you should watch out for them 3g disney 10 cents softbank all of those companies have actually been on the acquisition trail i'm afraid you know the targets were just not necessarily the ones that we had highlighted. Um, very good. So, I, I mean, I guess, obviously, some of the uh, the hot topics that we maybe missed, um, didn't get right or wrong, but we just missed what would have been Bitcoin, maybe some of the backlash against big tech. But um, I imagine that that will feature in the coming year. Why don't we roll into kind of what you see? What were the, I mean, there are obviously dozens of predictions here. What are the ones that really kind of um, as the editor sort of caught your eye as a bit provocative, maybe a um, bit, um, you know, off the trail, uh, maybe not expect- expected. Well, I th- yeah. I mean, one of the big topics this year, as you said, one that crept up on us and we hadn't said a word about last year was Bitcoin. Uh, here we have Eddie Chancellor, who is an expert in 
financial bubbles and speculation. He's literally written the book on the topic. Uh, and he says Bitcoin speculators face a total wipeout. He's talking about something like a 99.9% crash in the price of Bitcoin, which he had identified as sort of a tulip mania style bubble. That's definitely uh, a kind of prediction that we like, you know, doesn't pull its punches very easily testable in a year's time where you're right or wrong. Well, it's interesting also, I think, as you, you, you identified Eddie there, I mean, lots of people are obviously calling this a bubble, but he has um, studied the history of manias, really, and uh, and I think really zeroes in on the specific, um, you know, analogs that, that show just how Bitcoin is quite like so many that have come before it. Um, which I think is interesting. Anyway, um, so there, uh, what about in tech, which is obviously a huge, huge, both in China and in the United States? So there's a lot of stuff on tech in this year's book. In fact, there's a whole section of the book dedicated to the tech industry. Um, I think, as you said, the tech backlash, the building um, disquiet about technology's uh, kind of power and lack of accountability is a really big theme. So here we say, for example, uh, amongst the big U.S. tech stocks, Apple is perhaps the best insulated. It's a hardware company, first and foremost. And also, it has a slightly different attitude to privacy than some of the others. So it's maybe less problematic than a Facebook um, or a Twitter. Um, what else do we say? We say that Amazon is going to be very important because of this decision on where to locate their headquarters. That will actually have a huge impact on whichever, whichever city in the United States they pick for that. Uh, we also identify a new acronym. People have been talking about the FANG, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, and the BATS, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Well, we say, you know, we hope you still got some appetite left for tech because we've got Slaw coming, <laughs> Spotify, Lyft. Um, what is that? For <laughs> Spotify, Lyft. Airbnb the, and WeWork. Yes, thank so, you. Yeah. So four kind of consumer-facing technology startups that are all likely to go public in the U.S., all at big kind of tens of billions of dollar valuations. Interesting. Um, take us through maybe some of the geopolitical scene and, and how that fits into the ec economic world. Obviously, a huge theme over the past 12 months has been uh, President Donald Trump uh, and his relationship with the president of China, um, with uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, and so how are we seeing those forces, um, you know, playing out in the coming year? That's right. Well, actually, the title of the book this year is Froth and Frustration. So we're saying, on the one hand, we have these very kind of ebullient markets. On the other hand, there's a lot of kind of populism, simmering discontent, um, bipartisanship. Um, in America, we think that the midterms will be very important, the elections later in the year. Uh, we think, if anything, it's going to remove yet more of the politicians who are willing to compromise and replace them with hardliners, perhaps on both sides of the aisle. Uh, in Latin America, we think there'll be probably some kind of populist resurgence too. Uh, we think in Italy, there'll be a kind of return to the bad old days of uh, political um, stasis because of a system which makes it hard for someone to have a decisive majority. Um, in China, I think you identify an idea that actually uh, the Belt and Road program, this ambitious uh, push overseas by China into dozens of uh, neighboring and nearby countries will become a little bit more difficult because it's actually not always a very economic project. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on on the geopolitical and on the political front. And I guess uh, just to wrap things up, I wonder, is there anything that's sort of um, 
peculiar, odd, um, whimsical, maybe. Um, we, all, we tend to have something that goes um, a little bit off-piste that, that's a bit of fun. Uh, what, what have we got? Well, a few things this year, yeah. So we think about, um, for example, we say it's possible that Brexit Britain might start legalizing drugs, at least cannabis, uh, which would be a, you know, a kind of nice uh, economic fillip for the country. Um, we sort of talk about the transfer bubble in European soccer, huge prices paid for players. We think that's probably going to grow, if anything. Um, we talk, too, about the rise of low alcohol and no alcohol drinks. We know that some of the big, big drinks companies are actually targeting those who don't drink at all or like to drink in moderation, which is maybe a surprising topic to read about over the holiday season. <laughs> Very good. Well, I mean, froth and frustration. Uh, we'll be bringing the, the columns out, obviously, over the coming weeks. The book will be available in January. Thanks very much, Quentin, for uh, talking us through it. And uh, we'll be back with more Breaking Views soon. Thank you. So, Pete, one of the world's biggest ever flotations, Saudi Aramco, the massive oil company. What should we expect in 2018? Everybody's been wondering where Saudi Aramco, this huge IPO, is going to end up. And there's been this big competition between global exchanges seeking to do to win at least a piece of this listing. Um, what we think is going to happen increasingly is that it's been narrowed down to two leading contenders, uh, London and Hong Kong. Um, the U.S. has been kind of deprecated to our view um, due to the, uh, new, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act that would expose the Saudi government to lawsuits via an Aramco listing in New York. That would be a negative. Um, London is still looking pretty good, but it's got some problems. Um, there's questions about, you know, the listing of a government entity in the London Stock Exchange. There's also a potential conflict with the Qatari Investment Authority, which is involved in the London Exchange, um, that isn't getting very along very well with Riyadh. That leaves Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a very unusual choice for the listing of a Middle Eastern oil company, isn't it? Why on earth would Hong Kong be a leading contender? Well, that's a great question. The, the Hong Kong's advantages are one thing, motivation. Um, the chief executive of the Hong Kong Stock, Ex Stock Exchange, Charles Lee, is really, really gunning for the Aramco listing. The, the exchange has been kind of struggling to sex itself up of, of late. Um, you know, winning the world's biggest IPO ever would certainly be a, not only a, a nice feather in the cap of, of the exchange, but also Charles Lee himself, who would like that sort of thing. Um, he's also willing to be very flexible in terms of the rules. Um, you know, Saudi Aramco is going to require a bit of flexibility. They only want to list 5%. Um, that's below the 25% guideline. Um, there's other items, but really it seems like Hong Kong is quite motivated to get this. They also can tap mainland Chinese money. Um, Beijing is reportedly assembling a, a coterie of big state enterprises to invest, including the, the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And there's also the diplomatic question. You know, China buys a massive amount of oil. It's going to probably be the world's largest consumer of oil to come. Um, the diplomatic relationship between Beijing and Riyadh is important, um, not only in terms of economic terms, but also militarily as, as China expands its blue water fleet you know, into the Indian Ocean and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of reasons to get along with China. Um, the problems are that Hong Kong is not, you know, is, uh, 
an ideally configured market in some ways. It is, in a lot of ways, a very parochial market. The IPOs that do very well here are Chinese companies coming from the mainland and listed here. In stark contrast are the foreign secondary listings like Glencore um, and Coach, uh, which recently took down their tickers because simply nobody was interested. So there's a question of how the market would receive Aramco, $100 billion, and how much trade would actually be done, you know, or would it just be like kind of this big trophy deal, and then the ticker ends up moldering, and nobody does any trade, and the whole thing is kind of an embarrassment. Pete Sweeney, thanks very much. Robin Mack, uh, you think it's going to be a big year in mobile telephony. It's all to do with the rise of 5G. Can you tell me what 5G is and why 2018 will be a banner year? Yeah, so 5G is the next generation of mobile uh, wireless technology. So unlike the current 4G, uh, 5G is um, going to be much faster. And more importantly, it's going to connect billions of machines and devices and allow them to talk to each other. So that's going to be quite critical for things like autonomous driving and Internet of Things. And you say, in some ways, this is going to be about the rise of China and China's technological leadership. Why is that the case? Well, so in the past, um, these mobile uh, tech breakthroughs have been done by you know companies like Qualcomm in the U.S. or Ericsson and, and uh, Nokia and Samsung. Um, and China has been uh, not a big player in sort of uh, pioneering technologies like this. Um, But for 5G, things are quite different. Um, So two companies, Huawei and ZTE, they're both telecoms equipment makers. Um, They've invested billions of dollars um, to developing their own 5G technology. And next year is going to be quite a big year for 5G because um, it's going to be the the first draft of the global standards of 5G is going to come out. Um, And Huawei and ZTE, they do have a lot of technologies that that will be competing to be included in the standards for 5G. And where will consumers first get their opportunity to test 5G technology? Well, so China has already been uh, uh, conducting some large-scale trials for 5G, but then the world will really get a glimpse of this in uh, first in the Winter Olympics in South Korea, Um, And secondly, in Russia for the uh, World Cup. So we're talking about streaming video super quickly and so on. Yeah. And also in Pyeongchang, South Korea, it even promises um, you'll have autonomous driving buses and and just, you know, quite an immersive 360 virtual reality streaming experience as well. And is this a one off? Isn't China kind of keen in many bits of uh, emerging technology to show leadership? Tell me about that. Yeah, so this um, I, this certainly looks like a, a preview for a lot of these coming tech battles to come. So in areas like artificial intelligence, um, Internet of Things, um, you have lots of Chinese companies that are just investing a lot in R&D and talent. Um, so companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent are you know trying to catch up in, in artificial intelligence. Um, even, you know, autonomous driving and batteries, um, you do have some emerging Chinese players that, you know, are quite keen to play a much uh, bigger role on the global stage. Robin Mack, thanks very much. Okay, Tom Berkeley, you have been watching Bitcoin, God bless you. And you have been one heck of a year, Jen. (laughs) You have a prediction that Wall Street is going to come around and learn to love this cryptocurrency. What is going on here? 
Well, what's going on is we've seen kind of a, a, a real acceleration of this phase. Bitcoin has gone through several big spurts over its since it was first launched back uh, uh, about seven years ago. And, you know, at each one of these, you get a, a bit of speculative uh, excess and then it calms down. But what we've seen this past year and especially in the last three months has been it's it's been rocket fueled. Uh, and several factors are in there. Um, one is simply the self-feeding frenzy of a higher price draws more people in. And as you get people on the outside saying, God, it's a bubble, it just sort of Self perpetuates yeah. the uh, the publicity for Bitcoin. It's kind of like uh, the Trump phenomenon in virtual currencies. Uh, and then you really have people coming into ma mainstream finance who are saying, I want a piece of the action. And, and they were a lot of people in mainstream finance were sort of dogging this. Well, you saw it initially first in the hedge fund community. So, you know, find me a hedge fund trader who hasn't bought a couple of Bitcoin just to just to, on, on their own personal account, just to see what it's about, uh, just to, you know, who knows, if it goes to 100,000, you know, why not? But we've had, you know, scores of smaller hedge funds set up to dabble in um, in the coin economy, uh, Bitcoin, Ether, and various of the other, you know, 300-odd cryptocurrencies. But Mike Novogratz, who was a star macro trader at Fortress, um, kind of crashed out a couple years ago and then came back. He's been dabbling on his own says he made the trade of his lifetime and now he's raising 500 million pounds 500 million dollars for his own cryptocurrency hedge funds it'll be everything from bitcoin and the like to blockchain you know he wants in on this 100 mm -hmm, percent. Mm -hmm. and you see other wall street firms you think are going to start following suit well the other wall street firms are are a bit hesitant but you know the most notable thing we've seen in, in recent weeks is the exchanges uh first the cboe and then the cme the big chicago uh, um, you know, the former commodity and now, you know, financial futures exchanges decided we want a piece of the action. They launched Bitcoin futures contracts. Part of it works because they've they've managed, they've been spending the past year getting their relationship with various, uh, you know, coin exchanges to actually get prices that they can base it on. They don't actually have to deliver Bitcoin. So this is a way you can trade on Bitcoin price without necessarily having to worry about, do I have a digital wallet? Can someone actually steal my Bitcoin? You're actually dealing in, in dollars. Um, and also was approved by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is much more lenient and much more open to innovation than the Securities and Exchange Commission, which rejected uh, an application for an exchange-traded fund in Bitcoin earlier this year. Okay. So, Tom, before you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think Bitcoin's going to reach next year? Peak. Peak. Oh, it's sort of hard to say. You know, the number of people who put a six-digit figure out there, it's going to go to 100,000. Look, we saw it go from uh, just under $1,000 early this year to now it's over $18,000. So, uh, you know, even to hit $100,000 in 2018 will be a slowdown in its uh, in its phase. I mean, I think you're going to see some steam blow off. I, I don't know whether we're going to see a $10,000 up day, but I don't think we've seen the peak of the frenzy. I think that at some point in 2018, you're going to see a a lot of the air come out of this market. But, um, you know, whether it's just setting the base for yet another parabolic climb. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all of my guests. That includes Quentin Webb, Jeff Goldfarb, Pete Sweeney, Robin Mack, and Tom Berkeley. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.